Welcome to Ghoulish Tendencies. I'm Gabby. And I'm Kim. And we are two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not so famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. Debunking is my favorite word. It's Kim's favorite thing to do. It's also mm. Scully's favorite thing to do, which is also That's why true. we call Kim Scully. That's that true. It's our verb of life, scullying. Um, so, you know, it's been a really interesting last couple of weeks, and we wanted to address everything going on with Black Lives Matter and just stand in solidarity with all of our listeners and friends and family who have been so affected by everything. And I wanted to give you a quote. In a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist, said Angela Davis. We stand in solidarity with people of color, and we want to be allies as anti-racists. Stand with us by donating to Black Lives Matter and bail sources for protesters, which we've listed in our show notes. Also, vote. Help make change, not just now by posting on your feeds, as we have also done, but also take action. Angela Davis also said, quote, you have to act as if it were possible to radically transform the world and you have to do it all the time, end quote. Don't just react. Help make this an equitable place by elevating voices and making change constantly. Protest, donate, support businesses of people of color and help each other out. And so with that, we are going to move into our topic of today. Kim, what's our topic? So our our topic is one that has been of particular interest to me for a while. It's a story that uh, a lot of people are familiar with, at least outside of the U.S. Uh, In the U.S., some people know this now because it was the topic of uh, the movie The Conjuring 2. Oh, I'm excited. I love The Conjuring movies. This is the case that they delve into in The Conjuring 2. before this, I, I, I will kind of say that I feel like most people in the U.S. had not heard of this case. But in the United Kingdom, this was their Amityville. Like, everybody knew this story. Dang. And this is the story of the Enfield poltergeist. Oh, oh, I think I've heard of this one. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> uh, now, the the paranormal investigator, Maurice Gross, who was uh, instrumental in this case, he would say, I think this is the best case this century. As far as documentation is concerned, it may be the best case of all time. The Hodgson's family lived at 284 Green Street in Enfield, England. Peggy Hodgson was a single mother to four children, Margaret, age 13, Janet, 11, Johnny, 10, and Billy, 7. Uh, she had divorced from her husband a few years before. And she did her best, raising four children in a council flat. A council flat in the UK is essentially public housing. It was a three-bedroom home. Upstairs, there was three bedrooms. There was a kitchen downstairs, a living room, and a bathroom. Nice. On August 30th of 1977, young Janet, 11, came downstairs and complained uh, that her brother Billy's bed was, quote, going all funny. Excuse me? Yeah. Well, and and Mrs. Hodgins was like, yeah, sure, kid, whatever. (laughs) 
I mean, to be fair, I would probably say the same thing. Oh no, totally. Like this is, this is classic kid behavior of, I don't feel like going to bed. And you're like, okay, go to bed. Yeah. So she said, you know, stop, stop messing around. And Janet went back to bed. The next night though, August 31st of 1977, this is, this is really the start of it. It's about 930 in the evening. Janet and her brother are in bed and they hear a noise kind of like shuffling like possibly a person shuffling around. So Mrs. Hodgson comes in the room and the kids are like, we're hearing noises. And again, she's like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> right. Uh, and she turned the lights off. And right when she turned the lights off, there was that strange noise. So she turns the lights back on. There's nothing. And so she's like, all right, whatever. It's again, it's the city. Turns the lights off and there's the sound. Shuffling. And then four knocks. And they all clearly heard it. And the knocks seem to be coming from the wall. And their, their home shared a wall with the neighbor. Oh, so it could have been the neighbor knocking? Maybe? And that's what they thought. Their neighbor's the Nottinghams. No relationship as far as I know to Sheriff. <laughs> so, you know, and again, mom's reasonable. She's like, all right, well, they probably have some friends over or something. But then the chest of drawers moves. Hmm. Like it, it slides across the floor. And according to Mrs. Hodgson, it was about 18 inches that it, it slid. That's a pretty long distance. Yeah. That's not like it, it moved a couple inches, 18 inches. That's a foot and a half. Yeah. That's pretty far. That's pretty far. Was it and heavy too? Did it have a bunch of stuff in it? Uh, it wasn't so heavy. She couldn't move it back. Cause that's what she did. She went over and oh. moved it back. Which I'm like, that is the most chill response ever. That's how you almost know she's got four kids. There's a chest of drawers moving and she's just like, damn it, go back. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time. Ain't nobody got time for this. And so she, she moves it back and then it moves again. And so she tries to move it back and she can't. It's like somebody was standing there holding it. So this is, this is weird enough to her that she's like, okay, maybe we should go downstairs. And then after the family goes downstairs, she's like, you know what? Maybe we should go next door. Because next door, the Nottinghams, uh, Vic Nottingham, uh, he lived there with his wife and their 20-year-old son. And, and he helped the family out. They were a very nice family. So they said, you know, something weird's going on. Would you go check and see if you notice anything? And and so they're being the good neighbors that they are. Vic's like, yeah, totally. We will go over. And honestly, Vic thinks there's probably something wrong with the structure. That makes sense. It's causing the furniture to move. Yeah. No, that's that's a really logical conclusion to make. So Vic goes over there with his 20-year-old son. They search the house. They don't see anything. But then they hear. Oh no. Do they hear knocks? knocking? Okay. <gasps> they knocks. Yeah. Four knocks. And the knocks, as far as they could tell, it seemed like they were maybe coming from outside, though. So they're like, or oh, we'll, we'll look, because maybe it's some kids or something. The knocking keeps happening. We don't see anything, but the knocking keeps happening. And, and Vic would describe it as though the knocks were following them. That's weird. And the son put his hand to the wall, and he said he could feel it vibrating. Wait, but do you think that's his son being, like, dramatic? I don't get that impression from anything I've read, but I mean, even if it was, the knocks are still happening. That's true. And Mrs. Hodgson, she'd later described the sound as, quote, it's as if something's behind the wall trying to get in. Or get out. Or get out. So Vic and his family are like, 
Okay, yeah. Uh, we don't really have anything we can do. Sorry, this is above our pay grade. Why don't you call the cops? Because they're going to do anything. I know, but they do. That's what you do, I guess, when there's something weird in your house. So Constable Carolyn Heaps gets the call over the radio about the disturbance. Uh, so her and her male colleague head to the home. And like they're not really sure what they're expecting when they're getting there. You hear disturbance, you think probably something domestic. But what they encounter is this family who's very upset talking about knocking and noises and moving furniture. And Vic then demonstrates. He turns off the lights and immediately there's four knocks. And then there's silence for a couple minutes. And then from a different wall, four more knocks. And even though the lights were off, there was enough light coming from the outside. It was really clear that it wasn't anyone in the room doing it. So the police are like, all right, we'll search the house. And uh, Heap's colleague, he started checking on the plumbing, which I was kind of like, good on you, dude. Because yeah, that's something that could create weird sounds. Right, like pipes. Making like pipes, yeah. Yeah, air yeah. the pipes or whatever. Uh, and Heaps is in the living room. And then the weirdness continues. And she would later say this in an interview. The lights in the living room were switched off again. And within a few minutes, the eldest son pointed to a chair which was standing next to the sofa. I looked at the chair and noticed that it was wobbling slightly from side to side. What? I then saw the chair slide across the floor towards the kitchen wall. What? It moved approximately three to four feet and then came to rest. She'd go on to say, at no time did it appear to leave the floor. I checked the chair, but could not find nothing to explain how it had moved. The lights were switched back on. Nothing else had happened that night, although we have later reports of disturbances at this address. And like, again, the family sees it. Vic sees it. You've got multiple witnesses who see this happen. So there's no way that anyone could have like clear... Like fish wire. She checks too. She checked all around to see if somebody had rigged it and she didn't find anything. Huh. But at this point, it's, it's like past midnight. And they're like, yeah, this is weird shit, but also what do you want us to do? <laughs> like there's literally nothing that they can do at there's that point. There's no, I mean, and that's right. What can they do? There's not a law that's technically being broken. And he, what are you going to do, arrest a ghost? <laughs> that's a good visual. <laughs> I know, right? So they they said, you know, like we'll check in on you, but so they're not super keen. The family's not really keen to go back to their bedroom. So they set themselves up in the living room. They go to sleep, and the next day, marbles and Legos start being thrown around. Oh, and Vic comes over, and he's like almost hit by a marble, and he goes to pick it up, and it's burning hot. What? Hold on. <laughs> it's a hot marble. Hey, he's got some hot hey, balls. Hot balls. <laughs> Great balls of fire. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, they, you know, like the police come over again, but what, what are they going to do? Put out your great balls of fire, I guess. I mean, maybe they'll call the fire department. Maybe they'll be more effective. It's hot, hot, hot. So, <laughs> like, this keeps going. And it's it's September 4th and Peggy Nottingham their neighbor, she has this idea to call the Daily Mirror to see if maybe there's something they can do. Because, like, the cops aren't any help. Yeah, sure. Call the newspaper. Why not? What are they going to do? Publish about it? And just write about it? Well, (laughs) 
wait and see. Oh. So uh, reporters Douglas Bentz and Graham Morris, they're sent over to the home and, and they look at everything. Nothing's really happening. So at like 2.30 in the morning on September 5th, they said, all right, well, I guess it stopped. We're going to leave. So they leave the house. And immediately after they leave, the Lego apocalypse begins. Like there's Legos just flying every which way. So Lego Vic- apocalypse. I love that. Lego apocalypse. So Vic Nottingham, he runs outside and he's like, you got to get back in here. Things just started happening. So Morris and Benz, they run back in and Morris starts taking pictures and he gets beamed like right above his right eye with a Lego. Dang. And he'd later say, when I went into the living room, I saw toy bricks flying through the air. One of them hit me on the head. Nobody seemed to be throwing them. They were coming at the speed of bullets. I saw That's at least, said, oh my right? God, Gabby. <laughs> I saw at least three and attempted to photograph them, but they were too fast for me. Now, it would be another reporter who actually gives the family the suggestion of calling the Society of Psychical Research. The Society for Psychical Research, they were set up in London in 1882. So they've been around for a very long time. They are still in existence. Yes, I am a member. The Are you first- really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. I did not know that. Fun fact. Oh, yeah. yeah. Have I never mentioned that? Yeah. No. <laughs> so they examine claims of psychic and paranormal phenomena. So what uh, the reporter was thinking is that maybe what they had was a poltergeist. And no one in the family had any idea of what a poltergeist is. And so before we go any further, that is the question. What is a poltergeist? Good question. It's a great question. Partially because, and I, I, as you know, I like to note things like this when we're dealing with anything in this nature. There is not one agreed upon definition of what a poltergeist is. Correct. Now, the word itself comes from a German word that literally mm-hmm. means knocking ghost because Germans have a word for everything. And that's kind of it. It's a noisy ghost. It's an active spirit. Um, things moving, coming off the walls, physical disturbances. They can also make physical contact with the living. But part of the debate when it comes to poltergeists is whether or not they are spirits and ghosts. Yes. I was just going to say, that's what I heard. It's a big debate because there are people who are of the school of thought that poltergeists are just very active spirits. And then you have uh, like the website Psychic Elements, which gives a definition of the best way to describe it is active kinetic energy that causes physical disturbances. These can range from almost unnoticeable events to full-scale physical attacks. The energy is usually centered on one person in the household or wherever the activity is taking place, and witnessed by other people. Poltergeists are not angry spirits seeking retribution, but psychic disturbances surrounding an unhappy person, often a teenager. Teen angst is strong with this one. Like, my beef with this definition of that's just being a teenager. I was going to say, do all teenagers have the power to throw shit with their mind? Most Stephen King novels, yes. So, like, but I mean, if, if... why don't we have more poltergeists then? So on the one side, again, you have people who see them as a form of ghost or spirit, and you have people who just think they're a manifestation of energy. Pick your poison. Sure. <laughs> the main distinction between a typical haunting and a poltergeist is that a regular haunting, we usually, not always, but we usually associate it with a location, being attached to a location or an object, and a poltergeist can attach itself to a person. Enter Maurice Gross. 
Maurice Gross was, uh, he was pretty new to the society at this point in time. He was really excited to dive into cases. Uh, he'd lost his daughter the year before in a oh. motorcycle accident. Sad. It was very sad. It was a very tragic accident. She was quite young. And there was a number of kind of strange coincidences surrounding her death. Um, his wife started feeling ill around the time of the accident. There were strange visions after she died. There was a whole thing with a birthday card that I'm not going to get into because long and complicated to explain over a podcast, but needless to say, he was inspired to start examining the paranormal world more closely. Totally fair. Yeah. So he came into their home, met the family, and his first impression was, I found chaos. The whole family was congregated in the house together with the neighbors next door, and there were a lot of very frightened people there. And he, he kind of came in being like, all right, let's see what we're dealing with. So he, he questioned the family because he said, at first I thought it might even be a family looking for a new council house. But now that I have lived on top of them for some time, I know about their reactions. I can tell the difference between the children's make-believe and their genuine response to something explicable. And he'd go on. You can't fake that. And everything they told me was typical of poltergeist cases, straight out of the book. Since they didn't even know what poltergeist was until Fallows told them, how would they know what to say if, they're, if they were making it up? That's valid. And no, that, that is very valid. And, and so one of the first things that Gross asks Mrs. Hodgson um, is that she start keeping track of anything she noticed. Dates, times, descriptions. And, and this is what we do when we go on investigations. We ask anyone whose home we're going to go into, whose business we're going to go into, to journal. Uh, in fact, our president of a ghost, Ross Allison, he has a whole book on paranormal journaling. Mm-hmm. And he has a uh, class right now that he's doing on... And he has a class. So if, if it's something you're interested in, his book is available for purchase on Amazon. Uh, you can look up at Spooked in Seattle's class. It, it goes quite in depth into these things. So nothing really happens when Gross first gets there. And the older son, he was attending a special school, so he left. But on September 8th at about 1.15 a.m., Janet's asleep. Gross and a couple of the reporters from the mirror, they hear a crash coming from Janet's room. Uh They run in there. Her bedside chair has drastically moved and is now overturned. It happens again about an hour later. And this time the photographer, he saw it happen and he caught a photo at the very end. The next night at about 9.20 p.m., more marbles are dropping and the sideboard of a drawer opens. Hmm. At 10.05, a marble flies at him. Oh, wonderful. The door to the bathroom closes on its own and he felt cold spots around his head and legs. As the family's getting ready for bed, they find a mug half full of water sitting in the middle of the kitchen. Oh, I do that all the time. You just put it in the middle of the kitchen floor? Well, not on the floor, but I leave my (laughs) cups out often. I get yelled at for it. Now, like middle of the floor. (laughs) And there's more marbles and Gross is noticing that the marbles seem to be falling, but then they're still. Like they don't bounce or roll? They don't bounce. They don't roll. And that like, yeah, that's that's just weird. It's super weird. Yeah. And for the first time, Gross is noticing that a lot of the activity seems to be somewhat centered around Janet. So... He decides that he wants others to be keeping watch, um, not because he necessarily thinks that they're going to be deceptive, but like that's what you do 
when you're researching this kind of thing. You're right. constantly watching. You're looking for rational explanations. You're you're open to whatever it could be. On September 10th, the Daily Mirror runs a piece entitled The House of Strange Happenings, and it gives an account of all that's been transpiring. It discusses the legitimacy of the events. And something that the reporter made note of is that because of the emotional atmosphere at the house and in the neighborhood ranging from hysteria through terror to excitement and tensions, it has been difficult to record satisfactory data. So it, it was bringing more attention to the home. Now that it's officially run in the paper, neighbors who already knew something was going on, like now everybody knows something's going on. Uh, Gross and, and Peggy Hodgson, they're asked to give a radio interview. and so. Peggy's asked to describe some of the events that have been happening. So she says, you know, I was woken up this morning by rattling noise and I didn't quite know what it was. I was going to get out of bed and investigate when Janet came in and said to me, mom, she said, it's jumping on the bed. What? But I think she must have meant it was moving the bed. Janet came in from school at a quarter to four. And when she came in, she went to the bird cage and sort of tapped on the cage of the budgie. And when she did that, the bell chimes hanging on the wall began to sway. Then she went out into the kitchen to get a cup of milk from the refrigerator. I followed her out there, standing behind her. She goes past the kitchen drawer near the sink, and one of the drawers gradually comes out. She's drinking her milk, and she says, Oh, look, Mom, the drawers come out. She walks back out to the kitchen, and there's a cardboard box standing on the table with some old things in it. And that jumps from the tabletop into the center of the kitchen floor. And this I actually saw. So what is so bonkers in general about this case is that it was not just incredibly active, but how many people were witnessing all of this activity. This was a typical day in their house. And whatever is happening is following her where she goes. Well, at this point, not really, but... But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Things are continuing. It's September 12th of 1977 when Guy Lyon Playfair, who's a writer and a member of the Society for Psychical Research, he phoned Maurice Gross and asked if he wanted his assistance. And Maurice Gross happily accepted. And uh, at this point, Playfair had just finished the book on the paranormal. He was like, I'm ready to take a vacation. But he'd heard Maurice speak about this. And after the continued coverage, he was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta get in on this. He would later write a book called This House is Haunted, the amazing inside story of the Enfield poltergeist. And I pulled very heavily from it. If you want to do a deep dive, it is an absolutely excellent resource. I will say, Playfair is 100% on board with this being completely legitimate. He does not doubt it for a minute. That's awesome. It's, it's fabulous. And the book is, a, again, it is a absolutely fantastic resource. But know going into it that it is not an unbiased resource. That's fair. Uh, doesn't mean it's still not a fantastic resource. Just know he believes very strongly, so everything is presented as such. Playfair arrives, meets the family, makes some notes that Janet seems impish, and then just hops right in. See what's going on. So they set up more cameras in the bedroom. They monitor the cameras. Janet goes to sleep, and they wait like 30 minutes, and they think she's asleep. So they make this big show like, oh, ha, 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 we're going downstairs. And they even like stomp their feet. They're trying to see if she's awake. Because they're trying to, at this point, Playfair isn't fully on board. He wants to make sure it's not a kid being cheeky and doing things and right. playing tricks. Fox sisters. Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 
so they think that like, if she thinks they've left, maybe they'll see her get up and move some furniture or knock on a wall. Playford does see her head pop up, but she doesn't actually do anything. At about 10.45, they hear something in Janet's room. And it sounds like a marble hitting the floor. But again, it does not bounce. It does not roll. And marbles have a really distinct sound when they hit the floor. I don't think I've ever dropped a marble and not had it roll a little no. bit. It always yeah. will like move somehow. I've never seen anything ever just drop and stay. No, because it's oh, round. It's designed yeah. to, even if you do it from a very short distance, it's going to move if it's on a hard surface. Right. So Playfair takes off his shoes to see if he can kind of find the marble and he steps on it right away. It's in the doorway to the bedroom. He drops it. It bounces and rolls. Normal. So he's like, all right, that's like, it's weird that it's acting normal. But what we were hearing before was very much not normal. Okay, maybe this is legit. So he's in. So... As the days are going by, they're marking several odd occurrences, um, particularly with the tech. The tape players and the cameras are having a lot of issues. Flash bulbs are failing, that sort of thing. And that's also, again, that's fairly common in hauntings to have your tech get messed up. Right. And it, it's kind of becoming routine. Like marbles are moving, Legos are moving, chairs are moving. Uh, Playfair even commented in this book, a full account of everything in that house would run to a couple of thousand pages and would make very tedious reading. Dang, but I bet Kim would read it. Oh, well, Kim was reading a lot of, like, I was reading a lot of this being like, should I include this? It's more of the same. Eh, probably not. So everybody is also commenting, though, this seems like the kind of prank a child would play. And Mrs. Harper revealed that there had been a man who had suffocated his four-year-old child and then oh. killed himself, oh, and that her no. former husband had known the man and apparently gotten some of the furniture for the home. What? Oh my god, that's really messed up. I guess like wait not waste not one not. I don't know. Oh, that rubs me the wrong way. But Mrs. Harper then I guess she disposed of all the furniture that had come from the house uh when she realized that maybe it was connected and it didn't make a difference, so it probably wasn't. The family, you know, because this is a lot. This is a lot for for a woman with four children. Um they'd escape to the neighbors a lot or to Peggy's brother's home, because Peggy's brother. He lived just a couple couple houses away. So on September 25th, the family was visiting uh, her brother, their uncle, and Peggy's sister-in-law was making tea. And she said, I was just pouring the water from the kettle into the teapot when something appeared right in front of my eyes and then dropped onto the kitchen unit top and bounced once. Was it a marble? No, it was a plastic rod from a children's toy. Oh. But she was very, very insistent that it was not thrown. It had just appeared. Hmm. And now what's interesting about this is this does give further proof to the idea that this poltergeist spirit is following a person or persons in the family and it was not relying simply on the home itself. So Playfair decided to do a little test because it, it seemed like things were constantly happening right after he'd left. And that's mighty convenient. If, if you're still like, mm, maybe this is a hoax. Isn't it convenient that I leave the room and suddenly there's knocks or I leave the room and suddenly a piece of furniture is thrown? Yeah. So he was going up the road to the pub for some food, but he hid a tape recorder before he left. Mm, smarty pants. Smarty pants. And sure enough, he hadn't even been gone very long when, when he's listening to the recording later, a crash is heard and then another crash. 
And the family's commenting on it. In fact, they're even commenting like, is he going to be back soon? We want him here so we can tell him what's happening. They didn't have any idea that the tape recorder was there. So there was no reason to fake an event at that point. On October 22nd, Rosalind Morris of the BBC, she visited the home and she recorded instances of the knocking happening, which we have recording of. You can hear. That sounds almost like someone's hammering. Yeah, it does kind of have that repetitiveness to it. Like someone's uh, like next door hammering something into the wall. Like there's up, 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 up. But at, at this point, the people who live next door who they share a wall with are the Nottinghams. And the Nottinghams know what's going on. So and they're not hanging any pictures. No, no, they're not hanging any pictures. No. <laughs> <laughs> so all of this, this is, this is taking its toll on the family as it would. Um, Janet is really suffering in her schoolwork. She's not getting enough sleep. So... Uh, they're brainstorming, like, what should we do? And a social worker, they actually talked with a social worker about it. And they suggested, well, should we get them a new house? Uh, we could get them to the top of the list for, for a new council flat uh, to move. Like, this is completely reasonable. But Gross didn't think that that was the solution because he also sort of felt like, well, if this is something that's potentially following Janet, getting them a new home still going to follow her to the new home. It's still going to follow her to the new home. So he suggested a holiday and everyone was in agreement. So they decided the family would go to the seaside for a week. Right before they left, it was getting really bad. Puddles of water had started appearing in the kitchen when no one was around. Janet was reporting her chair was moving at school, which that's got to be terrifying. Wait, it's following her to school? It's following her to school now. Yeesh. And she was reporting she had the feeling that someone was trying to cover her nose when she was sleeping. Uh, and, so, and then she saw an old man in a chair and she said he was putting his hand over her face. What? Oh my God, that's terrifying. It's utterly terrifying. And so the, they deserved a vacation. So they left for a week. They returned on November 5th of 1977, which is bonfire night, a.k.a. Ooh. Guy Fox Day. Yay. Guy Fox, burn the world down. Anyway, the family returns to the home from their trip. And Maurice has this idea of why don't we try using Knox for communication? And this is going to be our, our next recording that we're going to be playing because um, he asked the spirit to do a certain number of knocks, which they did. And then he says, okay, cool. So we're going to try yes or no questions. And we'll do twice for yes and once for no. And we're going to play you what happens. Because you want to give us a special message. 
your message. Are you having a game with me? Dang. I was like, never mind. That's actually really apparent what's happening. Yeah. Um, he he asks the spirit flat out, are you having a game with me? And if, if it was not clear, a He's box and a cushion got thrown at him. <laughs> throwing things at his face. Are you throwing? playing a game? Yes, sir. I'm throwing a box at you. Throw it at your I'm, face. I mean, that's a good answer. That's like that feels like a yes to me. <laughs> also, that's like a really intelligent response like yeah. the that actually like listening to that like gave me crazy chills i know this is oh. like audio medium too but kim could see my facial expressions and my it eyes are really big also girl it's gonna get better <laughs> oh no oh yes i'm so excited i'm i'm, I'm like now because you've never heard any of the tapes before have you no i was waiting to do this with you there's more and and i do have to say like we are playing a small action of the media that is available for this case. Oh, there was man. a lot of tapes. There was a lot of recordings. On November 10th, Janet turns 12. Happy birthday, Janet! Happy birthday, Janet! Uh, an Argentinian psychic visits, and he was measuring EMF fields around the girls. Janet's pillow is thrown twice, and there were spikes in the equipment each time that happened. That makes sense. Also- yeah, yeah. I mean, that's logical. That's what happens. Right. On November 12th, Janet was pushed out of her bed at about 5 a.m. Mattress was tipped over on top of her. That's uh, not a nice that, way to wake up. It's not a great way to wake up. And and Peggy decides to try to put out a piece of paper and writing utensils and ask the spirit to oh, leave her no. a message. Oh, yeah. Like five minutes later, she found a message on the fridge and it said, I will stay in the house. Do not read this to anyone or I will retaliate. Wait. But other people could read it if you leave it on the fridge. It's spirit logic. Spirit logic is not detail-oriented. Hashtag spirit logic. (laughs) On November 26th, in the span of about five minutes, Janet was found twice under her bed asleep. And later in the evening, she was once again pushed out of bed with her mattress tipped on top of her. And did she wake up from that? Apparently not. Oh my God. Heavy sleeper. A heavy sleeper. Uh, on December 3rd, she was pulled out of her bed and out of the room. Maurice Gross actually found her sleeping, sliding down the steps head first. What the fuck? Are you I serious? know. Wait it's a also weird to me because I have horrible insomnia. And when it comes to like somebody touching me, I'm the lightest of light sleepers. So it is so weird for me to imagine that you could get dragged out of bed and be like pulled downstairs and you'd be like head first. <sighs> Head first. That's crazy. Yeah, like it's crazy. She must have been knocked out by the ghost and then well, threw her down the stairs. What's interesting, because she does sleep through a lot of things, and that is something that's been brought up as a possibility. Like, is it possible she was having night terrors or sleep paralysis? Or is it possible some of what was happening actually had more to do with a sleeping disorder than a poltergeist? Maybe. And that's getting into some of the skeptics when they look at this case. Yes, Scullies. Yes, Scullies. So December 10th, two more members from the society come to investigate and they make a recording and Maurice challenged the spirit to speak. And Janet then seemed to be channeling the spirit. And at first there was just noises. And then she said she was a man named Joe Watson. Wait, what? Oh, it gets better. 
So a few days after that, on December 13th, they did another question and answer session. And now she says her spirit is named Bill Wilkins. And we, we have part of that recording available that we're going to play. Let me hear you say my name. Come on. Let me hear you say my name. That's not my name. Is that a dog? The spirit barks, yeah. Come on, my name's Morris. Let me hear you say it. Morris. I want you to tell me whether you remember what happened to you when you died. Just before you died and just after you died. took a bunch of screenshots or I took a bunch of pictures while you were reacting because I thought that might be funny for our, our Instagram. So I have I have some pictures of you making some fabulous faces. Um oh my god I don't think I've ever heard this audio before that is gonna so say crazy. I have to say it was delightful being able to watch your reactions since you've never heard these recordings before. Cause I've heard most of these recordings I heard years ago and, but like, my God, they're effective, aren't they? Oh my God. Yeah. And it sounds really like, it sounds like there's a dude in the room just talking it does. and like, <laughs> literally I thought there was a dog there. <laughs> When, when, with the barking. Okay, so here's the thing. Remember when I had said the day before, or well, it wasn't the day before, it was a couple of days prior, when they first made contact with the spirit via Janet, mm-hmm. there were noises. Some of those noises were barks. 
Oh, well, that makes more sense. But like, if you didn't know context, it sounds like a dog is in the room. Yeah, it's because it's because the spirit was barking. So here's the thing. Uh, the spirit says its name is William Bill Wilkins. I'm that asshole. There was a man named Bill Wilkins, and he lived in this house years prior. I looked up his death certificate because, again, I am that asshole. Because this is Kim. Kim is Scully and she does the, the work. I do the work. I, it's, you know how you, you know, you're doing the work because you feel like you still haven't done enough. Um, that's you always. That is true. That's how I live my life. William C. L. Wilkins showed he died at 284 Green Street on the 20th of June of 1963. In the recording, Bill says, I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and I died in a chair in the corner downstairs. William Wilkins died of a coronary thrombosis. What is that? It's a blood clot. Oh. Blocking the heart, uh, which is different than a hemorrhage. A hemorrhage is, um, that would cause like a stroke. Uh, That's kind of quibbling. One could argue that a spirit may not know exactly why he died. He might think it's one thing and it ends up being another. But I have to point that out because I'm Scully. Now, one of the reasons why these recordings are debated about there's a technique of using your vestibular folds or your false vocal cords to create a deep and growling sound. It's a technique that's used by a lot of heavy metal and death metal vocalists. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Death metal. <laughs> I grew up uh, with that stuff. That's what it sounds like to me. Yes. Uh, right. But uh <laughs> it's a similar sound. You can't argue it's not a similar sound. And right. it's hard to do for more than like a a couple like phrases. Right. But also think about like if you're a death metal singer, you're doing it for an entire concert. So yeah, but a 12-year-old girl's not a death metal singer. And that's one of the arguments because they, they brought in some ventriloquists too who said, well, you could do XYZ. You know, it's funny. I... This is one of the cases I am so torn on because even for the parts of me that scully things, I'm like, yes, but is it possible that a 12-year-old girl learned how to make these sounds? Yes, but she's 12. I work with, I, let, me, let me put this out there. I work in the theater. I work with children in the theater. I work with children and teenagers in the theater. And my God, they don't know what the fuck they are doing with their voices. They think they do. They don't. Pardon my French. So a child, a child, because she's 12. That's a child. A child maintaining the proper vocal technique on this kind of thing, sustaining it this long, this often, and not severely, not just fucking up her voice. Let's put aside the permanent damage you could do to your voice doing something like this incorrectly. Because at this age, we are talking permanent damage. Plus, it sounds really clear like a man is talking. It sounds clear. It doesn't sound like a growl. And also, like not the talking parts. The kind of thing, like this is something that again, 
you'd have a sore throat. She's yeah. never had, I, I'd feel differently if she was a child that had training, but she doesn't. She's never used her voice like this. So let's say, yes, she figures out how to use her voice like this. If she was doing this, the chances of her not doing it and then feeling the effects of it for days or weeks after, I just, I, I struggle with this as somebody who watches teenagers try to project their voices properly and not do it. I, this is one of those times where even reading some of the skeptical reports, I want to be like, as a theater professional, I have opinions on this. And it is that if she is using her false vocal cords to create these sounds, the chances of an untrained, and let's come back to that, an untrained, she has never had any kind of training on how to properly use her voice. An untrained girl who is 12 years old doing this and not permanently damaging her voice. I just... I don't see it. I agree. Uh, that was a little rant I went off on. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I went off on a rant in terms of it being supernatural. That's how you know this case is getting to me. That's how you know it's legit. <laughs> it's, I, can, I tell you, this is a case I really, I struggle with. Um, I struggle to scully it. Once upon an October day in 1980-something, a super cool grandma was helping her seven-year-old grandson make candles for a scouting project. She grabbed essential oils from the medicine cabinet, melted some wax in a double boiler, and said, Babe, we've got the good juju. These candles are going to be marvelous. Today, what started as a passion project is now Pearl Candle Company, based in Portland, Oregon, and named for that super cool grandma, Pearl. And it's still all about the good juju. Along with all the positive energy they pack into their process, Pearl Candle Company uses 100% soy wax, recycled reusable containers, and a portfolio of non-toxic scents that we just plain adore. Kim and I both just ordered candles from them, and we cannot wait to get them. Check them out on Instagram or at pearlcandlecompany.com. It's all about the good juju. Okay. So Gross actually tried a couple different tactics to see if Janet could have been faking. Uh, he taped her mouth closed at one point. He had her water. The voice would still happen. It would just be a little bit more muffled or quiet. So Janet would later say the voices. I knew when the voices were happening, of course. It felt like something was behind me all of the time. They did all sorts of tests, filling my mouth with water and so on, but the voices still came out. The levitation was scary because you didn't know where you're going to land. I remember a curtain being wound around my neck. I was screaming. I thought I was going to die. Holy shit. Yeah. So December 15th, this is a good segue because it goes into, they're encouraging Janet to levitate, which also, why? there's some things now when I look back at the case where I'm like, wow, this was the seventies. Cause I don't think you'd be getting away with this with a 12 year old girl, but no, anyway. uh, investigators aren't in the room because she was kind of weird about that. And that's one of the things some of the skeptics look at that. She didn't like people being in the room when they'd ask her to do things, but also she's a 12 year old girl. Sure. Uh, pillows, books start moving. A red cushion ends up on the roof. The window's really hard to open. It makes a lot of noise. And the investigators were right outside. And a neighbor 
actually saw some of this. So she's getting home from work. She sees the cushion on the roof and she would later give this statement. I was standing there looking at the house when all of a sudden a couple of books came flying across and hit the window. It was so sudden. I heard the noise because it was so quiet. There was no traffic. It made me jump. Then after a little while, I saw Janet. I don't know if there's a bed underneath that window, but she was going up and down bodily as though someone was just tossing her up and down. Oh my God. In a horizontal position, like as if someone had got hold of her legs and back and was throwing her up and down. That's crazy. I, I definitely saw her come up from about window height, but I thought if she was bouncing, she'd bounce from her feet. She wouldn't be able to get enough power to bounce off her back to come up that high. Hmm. My friend could see her as well. We both could see her. So again, outside witnesses. Which is trusted. Which is trusted. Well, again, because they're they're not in there. They're not, they don't have context. They're just reporting what they're seeing. Right. So December 30th, Janet draws nine pictures. She seemed to have been in some kind of trance because she later would say she had no memory of it, but the pictures are all about blood and death. Yes. I mean, my kind of pictures, but whatever. Yeah, up your alley. There you go, my alley. January 15th of 1978. We're in the new year now. At this point, things have been happening for over three and a half months. Oldest daughter, Margaret, uh, she goes into the bathroom and the word shit was smeared on the wall in... Oh, in shit. Oh, well, at least they're literal, you know? You got to appreciate it. Uh, Mrs. Hodgson also saw an apparition, and it was her birthday. Happy birthday. Clean Happy up birthday. So the next day, another message is found in the bathroom. It's on the back of the door, and the message says, I am Fred. Oh, is it like Drop Dead Fred? Well, okay, so P.S., I looked this up. The name, the Fred. Fred was the name of Vic Nottingham's dad, who had lived next door and had oh. died. Oh. I'm not saying that that's necessarily who it is because Fred is a very common name. But sure. Could be. Uh, the I Am Fred was written in tape. And one of the points that was later made by the investigators is that the girls would not have had time. If this was something they were doing as a prank, they would not have had time to do it without getting caught. About 10 days after, it's January 26th, BBC Radio 4 comes back. They catch more okay. recordings of a spirit talking through Margaret this time. Margaret. And what's funny is that anytime Margaret channeled the spirit, she did not have the stamina that Janet had with it. It was never okay. quite as strong. But things are starting to slow down. March 12th now, so a couple months later, there's another interview with BBC Scotland. And wouldn't you know it, even though things have slowed down, when BBC Scotland was there, they capture more strange talking through Janet. Interesting, isn't that? It is interesting. So by the end of the month, there's talk about asking the Church of England to come in to do a formal exorcism. Peggy's still actively writing down anything that's happening. Uh, and one of the things she did note is that there is an increase in apparitions. Okay. More alarming, which is its own thing. But to me, the most alarming part is that suddenly fires, small fires have been starting. Huh. So May 1978, we have our favorite paranormal team entering from stage left, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Oh, yay. Yay. Uh, I realize that between this and Amityville, I'm kind of doing their greatest hits, but whatever. Uh, 
That they could visit- be like a whole separate podcast. <laughs> and Lorraine Warren's greatest hits. Yeah. They visit the home just a couple times. And it, it, those of you who've watched The Conjuring 2 and are expecting them to actually play a part in this case, they don't. <laughs> they really oh. don't. Uh, in the movie, yes, they do. It's a movie. They really had next to nothing to do with it. Uh, they did suggest that maybe Janet should spend some time somewhere else. So she's sent to live for a little bit in a house that is run by nuns. And then at the end of July, she is sent to Maudsley's Institute of Neuropsychology. Wow. Okay. To evaluate her and see that maybe possibly there is a psychological even a medical cause to explain some of what has been happening hmm. during her stay in the hospital. Um, I didn't find record of anything really happening and uh, nothing that I saw was really happening at the house. She gets home. She stayed there for about six weeks and literally within 30 minutes of getting home, she sees an apparition. Dang. So let's look at that because you could take this two ways. One way to take it is that, yes, there is a poltergeist that is focusing on her. And so if she's not in the home, nothing's going to happen. But then why wasn't anything happening in the hospital? Yeah, that's weird. It's weird. By October of 1978, they had a Dutch medium come in. Uh, There wasn't really anything specific about what this Dutch medium did, but things seemed to calm down. Well, that's good. So there you go. And things really did calm down. Um, Like, it's about a year later. It's August of 1979 when the Warrens came back. And wouldn't you know it, when the Warrens came back, something started up again. And they recorded a couple things of audio and recorded some levitation. That's weird. Yeah, is it? (laughs) That's. I I mean, it sounds convenient. It's convenient. That's a good way to put it. Convenient. So in October, a priest blesses the house, made things quiet down even more. What's really interesting to me is at the end of the day, like things never really came to a finish here. Um, Things quieted down. It never stopped. The family stayed in the house. Things didn't, again, fully stop, but it calmed down. Well, this isn't a case of Amityville with the Lutzes where they fled. No, they stayed there. Well, that's good, I guess. Janet's brother, Billy, um, he lived with his mother until she died in 2003. Then he moved out. The family reported they heard noises, always felt like they were uh, being watched, that something was there. And what's interesting is that the family that moved in after them also said they felt something. And the woman who moved in, she would later be quoted as saying in an interview is, I didn't see anything, but I felt uncomfortable. There was definitely some kind of presence in the house. I always felt like someone was looking at me. Her sons would wake up in the night and they'd hear people talking downstairs. They'd see things. Allegedly, they knew nothing about the hauntings when they moved in. And they moved out just two months after. Hmm. The Hodgson family, they endured a decent amount of tragedy. Their their older son, John, he died in 1981 at the age of 14 of cancer. Uh, Yeah, and Janet left the home. She married very young. She was 16 when she got married. And she actually lost her son when when he was 18. Oh, sad. So there, there was some sad things that happened in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, the validity of what happened is debated to this day. Janet and her sister admitted to faking a little bit of the activity, which doesn't shock me. They were kids. Right. Maurice Gross and 
guy Playfair, uh, they'd catch them occasionally pushing each other or trying to contort themselves in a strange position. Janet insists that they faked. She said, you know, maybe 2% of the activity was faked. And she said part of it was the pressure of the media. She was quoted as saying, I don't care whether people believe me or not. I went through this and it was true. That's hard to argue with too. It's hard to argue with. And I can kind of see it. Like you're getting all this media attention. There was constant media attention. You're kind of being asked to perform on demand. So I could see sometimes you being like, okay, sure. If it'll get you to shut up. Yeah. I'll do something. I could see that. Uh there are those though who, who believe very much that this entire thing was faked. Uh, Professor Christopher French, he believes that this was a case of people inadvertently embellishing. Okay. There could be something to that. Eyewitnesses yeah. are notoriously unreliable. Sure. We're open to suggestion. It's possible somebody, you know, I see a Lego piece flying through the air and I say something about it. And the next thing you know, everybody else remembers seeing that same Lego piece flying through the air. It's one of the reasons, actually, as an investigator, we don't talk about things during the investigation. We record things. We right. write it down. So we don't influence each other. Well, so you have, you know, multiple different perspectives and you don't listen to someone else and think that you're seeing something just because they saw it, right? We, because we're highly suggestible as people. Yeah. And, and so uh, Christopher French would actually say, he said, the girls admitted they fake stuff. Of course people would believe them say, well, they might have faked some of it, but some of it must be real. Believers tend to think we're too clever to be hoaxed by schoolgirls. But just because you didn't figure out how something was done doesn't mean it was impossible to do. Conjurers have been doing it for centuries, and as you stated earlier, like the Fox sisters. Mm-hmm. Well, and also Elsie uh, Wright, Frances Griffiths, um, the, lots the of cases. Cottingly fairy hoax, like they fooled Sir Arthur Conan Doyle with that. That says a lot. So there's also something called inattentional blindness. Inattentional blindness is the failure to notice a fully visible but unexpected object because attention was engaged another task, event, or object. Uh, I always think of, for myself, an example of this is sometimes when I'm walking and suddenly I stop because there is a spider right in front of my eye. And I didn't notice the spider before. How, because Kim? I was, it's a spider. <laughs> Inattentional blindness. And Gabby, I did a little test of my own earlier in the <laughs> evening because I sent Gabby a video. Uh, this is a video that's used to test people in inattentional blindness. And I'm going to say, if you want to take the test yourself, pause the podcast and go look up the inattentional blindness test and see what you notice. Well, wait. And if you've just come back because you've unpaused it, did you see the gorilla? <laughs> Wait, how do they find the test? They just Google it? You Google inattentional blindness test. Oh. Um, I read about it in one of the articles, that specific test. Uh, 50% of the people, for those of you who look it up, it's a video where you're supposed to be watching how many times the ball is passed by people wearing a certain color shirt. And during this time, a gorilla walks through, like a guy in a gorilla suit. And 50% of the people don't see the gorilla. Gabby, did you see the gorilla? Nope. No, Gabby sure didn't did not see, the gorilla, see the gorilla, but I did count the correct times that the ball was passed. Well, there you go. <laughs> and I, it's used partially. Like, look at, like, look at the case with the sister-in-law. She said the toy materialized. Did it materialize, or did she just not notice it? Because we're only processing so much, right? You could be focusing on something else. Exactly. In the end, 
30 people witnessed strange things happening in the Enfield house. Uh, Maurice Gross, Skyline, and Playfair were very adamant that whatever was happening was supernatural. And I, I will say, man, it is a case that I don't discount that something could have been happening. Um, I can't get over those vocals. Uh, the vocals to me are very compelling. And I understand there's people who say there's an explanation for that. But honestly, the what I come back to is like, I work with kids in the theater. My God, they I can't get them to talk above a certain level of volume properly for the most part. I struggle with a 12-year-old girl being able to do that without seriously damaging her vocal cords. And to also being it, like that consistent for that long. Exactly. And having, like a dialogue, essentially. It, again, it's it's not to say she couldn't have, but the amount it was happening, the level it was happening, I don't know. I and you know, it's very odd to think that the more likeliness, or let me rephrase, it is more unlikely for Kim to think that something is paranormal than for her to think that something is paranormal. So if Kim Douthit is saying that something is paranormal because she cannot debunk it, I'm going to believe Kim Douthit. Well, and I, I mean, for me, it's just the... Like, let's let's discount. Let's throw away 90% of what was happening. The 10% we're still left with is very compelling. Definitely. Uh, the, the things getting thrown, I find really compelling, particularly when we can see where everybody was in the room. The knocking, when they could see where people were in the room. Like, I mean, I it almost know. reminds me of the Bell Witch because they had the same stuff going on. Yeah, I just... I, I like even if we threw away a huge amount of what was happening there's still so much left where I'm like but there's still all these things it's one it this is a case I'm very intrigued by I think some of the skeptics that are so even when I read some of the articles that are like these are reasons why this was fake none of it to me explains everything it explains some of the stuff and I agree uh eyewitnesses can be unreliable I agree the girls were faking some of the stuff they admitted it they were if they said they were faking two percent of it let's face it that was probably more like ten percent of it at least but it's still not a hundred percent of it but it's not a hundred percent it's like when you say that uh you know i'm five minutes away and you mean ten you don't say i'm five minutes away and you mean two hours (laughs) no so that is the enfield haunting uh if you're interested in doing a little deeper dive there's uh the book that i mentioned you can find multiple documentaries um bbc was covering extensively i mean again uh, they were covering this regularly on the radio and the newspaper on television this was a huge thing in the uk back in the day and like there's audio visual evidence 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 for the timing of this too which i think is really cool to have because a lot of the cases that are like this that we have talked about were so far back that they didn't have stuff like that so, and if I'm if I'm being honest, I probably should have turned this into a two-parter, but I didn't. Because, uh, like, there's so much I didn't even cover. There's a lot aren't here. Aren't there some photos of her floating in the bedroom, or is that a different story? No, that is this. The photos are... And it's one of the reasons I didn't get super into them, the, the, the quote-unquote levitation photos with her in the bedroom, which we'll be posting to our Instagram. You can find them online incredibly easily. The photos are highly debated partially because... They've done some experiments to try to recreate it, and they are things that could be recreated by somebody jumping. Mm. Okay. So I don't, again, 
I don't want to say that it's not for levitating, but what I'm saying is for me, those are not super great evidence because it can, it can be easily debunked. It can be easily debunked. So it's, it's not an instance I look at as being super hard evidence, hard evidence. Um, there's a lot of other things available to look at that to me are more compelling. Um, but we'll, we'll be posting some of these pictures. Again, there's some great documentaries, some great links. You can watch The Conjuring too. They get some of the facts pretty dead on, but the Warrens had very little to do with this case. So all of that had, is not, obviously. Entertainment purposes. Oh, it's, I, I enjoy The Conjuring movies. I also find James Wan to be a fantastic director. So I, I personally really like his work. This kind of brings us to... <gasps> Creepy Critics Corner. Creepy Critics Corner. (laughs) And having said that, go watch The Conjurings. One and two. Yeah, and they're coming up with a third. Third, fourth, fifth. I don't know how many there are now. So for Creepy Critics Corner this week, we wanted to be able to, obviously we always talk about what we're watching and reading and what have you. And with everything uh, going on this last week, I have been last two weeks. I mean, it's, let's be real. It's been going on for 400 years, but, um, I think it's been really important for people to educate themselves in being anti-racist. And if you maybe come from a background where it's not really discussed, it's a great time to educate yourself. And I had a book recommended to me this week. It's called White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo. And I read it and it's an amazing book. It is very direct and straightforward. And I wanted to actually give you a quote from it. Do it. It is white people's responsibility to be less fragile. People of color don't need to twist themselves into knots trying to navigate us as painlessly as possible. Truly, like what people of color have gone through for like hundreds of years has been so awful and a lot of white people have just been sheltered from it. And I think what's really great about this book is it helps you, it almost like shakes you to identify like what have you contributed to in your white privilege and why are you so fragile, but what can you do to change things moving forward with your perspective, with helping others? And I think that's a really great perspective to have. So if you haven't read that book, I highly recommend it. We also have posted a bunch of podcasts on our stories of uh, podcasts done by people of color that are fantastic podcasts that you should absolutely listen to. Uh, One of my personal faves is Why Won't You Date Me by Nicole Byer. She's fantastic. Anything she does is amazing. And she's very hilarious. And I know I've talked about her in the past. She also has one for Star Wars nerds called Newcomers that she does talking about different Uh, Star Wars movies and literally anything Star Wars as she goes through and watches the episodes with another comedian. And um, another thing that I wanted to bring up are things to watch. Uh, I'll also be posting on our Instagram different books that you guys can read through. And on our show notes, there's areas to donate for Black Lives Matter and bail for any protesters that have been out there fighting the good fight. But one of the things that you can do if you can't go protest and you can't physically donate money is educate yourself and educate your friends and family who might need a little bit of a, you know, hand-holding moment. And Netflix actually has a show called 13th, and it's a documentary 
about the 13th Amendment and um, how basically prisons started. Honestly, it's very sad. It's hard to watch, but it's something that everyone should watch. And it's a really fantastically done documentary. And that's what I've been doing in the last couple of weeks is reading and watching stuff and trying to help educate others with the white privilege that I have because, uh, you know, I want to help out everybody in the situation and not make my voice necessarily heard, but help elevate others. So, Kim, (laughs) what have you been reading, watching? Uh, You know me. I have to stay on brand. So (laughs) I've selected a couple of things. Actually, these these were both ones that popped up on for my one of my other podcasts, which is at City of Geek, uh, for our best of the year. Uh, the first is a documentary called Horror Noir: A History of Black Horror. It's fucking Ooh. awesome. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, it's it's basically a look at the history of black horror films, the role that African Americans uh, have played in films uh, in horror specifically, because you know that's my jam. It's available on Shudder, which is the one of the horror streaming apps. But Shudder is making it available for free. That's cool. So if you don't have Shudder, don't worry. You can still access this documentary. And honestly, uh, it, it's highly entertaining. You, if you're a horror fan, if you like horror movies or, or the weird, it, it's just really great. Uh, there's also a movie that's made it into my top 10 of last year. It is called Atlantics. Um, It is available via Netflix to watch. It's a supernatural story. It it takes place in Africa and you follow a girl named Ada who is in love with a man named Solomon and she's engaged to another guy and Solomon goes off to try to find work and disappears. And things start happening, and it's a really unique take on a ghost story, um, and a really lovely take on a ghost story. And it's it's so well done, and so well acted, and so well constructed. And it it deals with uh, you've got your ghost story, but then you also have a lot of 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 social issues being addressed. But it's just again, it's a really fantastic film. Uh, if you need your true crime fix, there is a podcast called Fruit Loops. And they are absolutely fantastic. Uh, they focus on serial killers of color, <laughs> which uh, there's more of than people realize. And and so it's it's a really fun listen. The two hosts are great. They're very entertaining. And so if you're looking for for what's nice too is is that a lot of the killers that they cover are ones that do not get attention in a lot of your mainstream podcasts. And so. If you're really into true crime and serial killers, you will probably learn something new. I know that when I listen to their episodes, a lot of times I am surprised because it's a case I've not heard of and I'm not familiar with. So it's really and, delightful. And uh, you know it's hard to find an episode of anything that Kim has not heard of. <laughs> Kim, so, there's plenty that Kim doesn't know. Kim is very educated. She knows a lot. <laughs> she is it's, what I like to call the human encyclopedia of true crime and serial killers. There's but always more to learn. There's always more to learn. There's always more to learn. And that's our one of our many mottos. Having said that, thank you guys for listening. Stay strong out there. 
donate, do what you can to make a difference in your communities. Vote, please vote. It's like, please the most vote. my God, ever. vote. If you haven't checked out our Instagram already, it is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We've been holding off on the lives lately, but we'll get back to that at some point. And um, just, you know, we love a good feedback moment. So if you want to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, we totally appreciate that. Subscribe on whatever platform you like to listen to. That way, you know, when we have new episodes coming out, we do have a Patreon. We love if you can donate to us, but right now we want to help donating others. Donate, yeah, donate to, Don't to give Black it to Lives us. Matter. Give it to donate Black Lives to, Matter. Donate it to, you know what? You know who else has a podcast? You know who else who has a Patreon? Fruit Loops has a Patreon. Donate to their Patreon. Support some artists of colors. We have our website where we list all of our show notes. We'll also provide links for places where you can also donate for Black Lives Matter. Ghoulishtendencies.com. We also have a Facebook page page, which is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. We just love to hear from you guys. So if you like what you hear, please let us know, recommend to your friends, share the love and stay safe out there. And having said that, stay spooky.